pray that the change and processing and renewal would truly be manifest in our lives so that those around us would be so benefited and blessed by it. God, hear us by being with us in this prayer, in this worship service, and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, so one of the things that COVID did is identify those who are essential to us socially. Whether you're talking about first responders like the police, the firefighters, the health officials, doctors and nurses, or even those who provided essential services, those who provided our energy, our food, our waste management. COVID identified for us those who are essential to us socially. But did you know that Christmas has a way of doing something similar? It's true. Christmas has a way of identifying those who are essential to us personally. And what I mean by that is the holidays are such a crazy, chaotic time, is it not? And yet we make sure of prioritizing and making time, making room for those who we deem to be essential to our personal well-being. Meanwhile, we push to the side those who are not so essential, at least until the new year comes around. Case in point, I still remember the first year I moved to New York City. I bumped into a guy in the city who I was dear friends with during my seminary days. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this brother was essential to my personal and spiritual well-being. He was a brother I lost touch with over the years, and here he was in the flesh. And when we try to figure out a time to reconnect and possibly rekindle our long-lost friendship, the only available time that he had was this time of year, during the month of December. Now, had he told me he was available to meet in January, February, even March, I wouldn't have thought twice and totally reconnected with him. But he had no time during those months. The only time that he had to meet was the busiest month of the year for me. So I did think twice. I thought three times. I thought for the fourth until finally I said, sorry, man, I just don't have time. And I've forsaken the only opportunity of recapturing a friendship I lost so long ago. Why? Why did I do that? Well, to be brutally honest, this brother was no longer essential for me anymore. Yeah, there were other more important people, more essential people calling out and clamoring for my attention as they should because that's what the holidays does, does it not? It always crowds out those who are just not much of a priority, not that essential, and we tend to only exclusively spotlight those who we deem to be essential. But here's where we fall into some tragic irony. During the holiday seasons, we not only do that to persons that we say are non-essential, we also happen to do it to the person that the holiday is named after, Jesus Christ. It's true. How so? Well, that's what today's sermon is about. But we're continuing, first, our sermon series, Christmas According to the Old Testament, where we look at certain passages in the Old Testament scriptures to give us some insight and illumination to the true deeper meaning of the Advent season in the hopes that we would properly celebrate and honor God the way he intended for us to do. And today we land on 2 Samuel chapter 7, a passage where God creates the covenant with his servant David and all of his descendants. And as we take a look at this passage, we're going to see why Jesus Christ is the most essential person during the season of Advent and honestly, every season 
of your life to where he should always be a priority no matter what is happening in the chaos and craziness of life. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about David's relatability to all of us. Then we're going to talk about God's rejection of David's desire. And then we're going to end it with the son of David, who is the most essential to us. David's relatability to all of us, David's reject, God's rejection of David's desire, and the son of David, who is the most essential of all. Okay, let's begin with the first point, David's relatability to all of us. Now, go without saying that King David is one of the most famous people in the Bible. In fact, those who have never even picked up the scriptures will easily recognize his name. But as it is with all famous people, just because you recognize a person's name doesn't mean you know the person whose name you recognize. And if you're here today investigating the Christian faith, let me give you now the opportunity to formally introduce to you to who King David actually was. Read again with me verse 1 of our passage where it goes like this. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Okay, pause right there. Your attention, please. I want you to pay attention to those last two words that I just read to you surrounding enemies because those two words perfectly describe how David lived his entire life from the moment God first called him into service to the moment he breathed his last breath on earth and what I mean by that is David lived his entire life always surrounded by enemies which is another way of saying David lived his entire life always fighting yeah, he was fighting when he was a no-name youngster, when he went up against a giant named Goliath. He was fighting the armies of the Amalekites and the Philistines, both before king and after being king. He had to fight against some of his own men who betrayed him for political gain. And he had to fight homelessness and hunger as he was forced in the hidings of the cave of Adullam. And why was he in the caves of Adullam? Because his own father-in-law, his king, his predecessor, King Saul, wanted to kill him in murderous rage and envy because David was so successful in areas that he was not. And if that wasn't enough, David also had to contend with Saul's offspring, who always tried to snuff him out and conspire for his demise. But perhaps the greatest fight that was so heart-wrenching for David that he had to face was against his own household. Yeah, David had to fight against his own son, who tried to take the throne from him, a man by the name of Absalom. If you want to best characterize how David's life was, there is no better way than those two words that we read in verse 1. He was a man constantly surrounded by enemies. Now, with that stated, let me ask you, how do you think a person like David is going to see life? How do you think David saw life in general? Well, probably not what you've imagined when you were first introduced to him, right? You know, when little kids first learn about King David in Sunday school, they always imagine that his life was very posh, very easy, comfortable, and privileged because the only frame of reference little kids have of what royal life is like is what they see in Disney movies, right? But David's life was not like a Disney cartoon. Just the opposite. He was constantly bombarded with adversity and animosity, such sabotage and setback all the time to where eventually he was haunted by a survivor mindset. David lived his whole life with this constant paranoid survivor mindset. Let me prove it to you. Let me read to you just one of many Psalms that captures the kind of pervasive mindset David struggled with. This is Psalm 59 where it reads this. Rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. Rescue me from these criminals. Save me from these murderers. They have set an ambush for me. Fierce enemies are out there waiting, Lord, though I have not sinned or offended them. I've done nothing wrong, yet they prepare to attack me. Wake up, see what is happening, and help me. O Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, 
Israel, wake up and punish those hostile nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They come out at night snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. You know, there are many psalms that sound very similar to this, which tells us what? It tells us David was a man who saw life as a constant battle that he was just trying to survive in. And because that is so, every single one of us in this room find him much more relatable as adults than we ever did as kids. Why? Because if we're brutally honest, that's how we see life, do we not? Don't we all tend to see life as a constant battle that we're just trying to survive, just trying to keep our head above water? Yeah, especially as we live in a city like New York. You know, I just found out. Did you guys hear this? New York City, the most expensive city, not in America, but in the world. Yeah, we tied with Singapore. It's not as clean as Singapore, I must say, right? When we read the story of David, we don't come across some mythical figure that seems so far removed from our own everyday experience. No, we come across someone who is so relevant to us, so relatable. He feels like a kindred spirit to where we can easily identify with him, and we assume he could identify with us. In fact, that's what the story of David is designed to do. It's designed for you to imagine yourself like him because you see life the way he does. Take a listen to what Professor Baruch Halperin says. He teaches at Penn State University. This is from his award-winning book, David's Secret Demons. Quote, David is a character so extraordinary and yet so very human, so realistically fallible that the innocent reader almost inevitably empathizes with him. David, in a word, is human, fully four-dimensionally, recognizably human. He grows, he learns, he travails, and he suffers immeasurable tragedy and loss. He is the first human being in ancient world literature. In spite of the fact that thousands of years remove us from David, the fact of the matter is he could be like our next door neighbor because we tend to see life exactly the way he does. It is a constant battle we are trying to survive. It may not be a literal battle where we have to pick up swords and knives just to make it to the next day, but it is a genuine battle as we fight to put food on the table, roof over our children's head, and corrupting influences for coming upon them, we all, like David, feel like we are just trying to survive. We have the survivor mindset. And so here's the question. How does that mindset impact and color how you see God and, more importantly, how you value God, how you value him? Well, to answer that question, let me go to my next point, God's rejection of David's desire. Read again with me verse 1, but this time, let's take it down to verse 5. It reads, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God (coughs) dwells in a tent. (coughs) And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? So this is interesting. Even though David's life could be characterized as a man always surrounded by enemies where he's always fighting, we read in our passage here that he enjoyed a temporary period of peace and prosperity. And the reason why we know it's temporary is because in the next couple of chapters, he's facing more opposition and new enemies. But But that's not for us to linger on right now. Instead, I want you to focus on what David desires as he's enjoying this momentary peace and prosperity. What does he want? Well, if you look at his question in verse 2, it's clear what he wants. He wants to build a house for God, specifically a house of worship, a temple, basically, and why not? It's not unheard of for ancient kings to build houses of worship for their respective deities, and 
truth of the matter is, David really is the only one who has the sufficient resources to pull something like this off, and so he wants to do it now that he has this opportunity. In fact, even his spiritual advisor, Nathan the prophet, thinks this is a great idea. He encourages him to do so. In verse 3, he says, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But then, listen to what God says in response to David through his servant, the prophet Nathan. This is what he says in verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, just in case you didn't pick it up in this particular English translation, the way you should interpret God's questioning of David should go like this. Do you think I'm going to let you (laughs) build me a temple? You think I'm going to let you build me a house? Now, when you hear it like that, it's unmistakable. God is flat out rejecting David's desire to build him a house of worship, to build him a temple for God's people to glorify God. And the question is, why? Why would God reject such a generous gesture from David, especially now that David has the time, the opportunity, and the resources to pull it off? Why, Lord? The answer, because David has the time, the opportunity, and the resources to pull it off. Let me explain. In my previous church in Seattle, our church did a lot of outreach to the homeless community. And here's the thing. Whenever the homeless community catches wind that a particular church is helping them out, it spreads like wildfire. And so there were many days where people would knock on our office door asking for food, for money, for a couple nights at a nearby hotel so they can get off the streets for a few days. You know, for the most part, these folks were very kind, very gracious, very grateful people. But every now and then, you would come across someone who you knew hated Christianity and hated the church, evidenced by the chip on their shoulder and their attitude of entitlement. In fact, I remember one lady who came knocking on our door and she started barking out orders at me, asking as if she deserved what she asked for, entitled to it. But when I told her what our policy was, which was that the only way we could help you is if you first come to our Sunday worship service, because there our deacons are qualified and equipped and trained to help people in your situation, she lost it. She got so angry at me and started cursing me out in front of the secretary, in front of other people who were there in the office, and just letting me have him, berating me, saying how I'm such a wicked person, I'm such a hypocrite. And right before she left, slamming the door behind her, almost the hinges off, she said to me words that to this day I will never forget. She said, Pastor, I can't eat your Bible. And off she went. Pastor, I can't eat your Bible. Now, from that interaction, I learned something that's very invaluable, and it's this. When a person feels like they're barely surviving, God comes off as non-essential. Let me say that again. When a person feels like they're barely surviving, God comes off as non-essential. You know, when you're trying to survive, food is essential. Water is essential. Shelter is essential. But the word of God, the worship of God, God himself, those aren't essential things. Those are non-essential. In fact, those are luxuries, that only those who have the time, the opportunity, and the resources to enjoy, like middle-class Americans or maybe an ancient Eastern king who's enjoying some peace from his surrounding enemies. The reason why God rejected David's offer to build him a temple is because God refused to validate the idea that says God is only essential after more essential things are taken care of. God says that is not how it works, and that's not how it is. Take a listen to what it says in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the text makes it clear. God is the one who provided the essential need for peace in David's life. 
God is the one who takes full credit for all the peace and prosperity that David gets to enjoy right then and there. In fact, God wants to emphasize this so much, he repeats this to David directly in verse 9. He says, I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Why is God doing this? Why is he almost drilling it into David's mind that he's the one responsible for all the essential needs of David being met? The only possible answer is, is that at some point as David is struggling to survive and then eventually succeeding to survive, he came under the delusion that he was the one responsible for all of his essential needs being met. He was the one to take full credit for why he has peace and prosperity now. But let me ask you, what does that kind of delusion do in terms of how you view God? You build a temple. Because what does the temple symbolize? The temple symbolizes David's power, David's ability to make God essential, right? David is the one, by building this temple, authorizing, legitimizing, deputizing, permitting God to be something that presumably God could not be without David? Are you serious? Indeed, David was under the delusion that the true essential person in his life was not Yahweh, but himself. And the only reason why he would ever think Yahweh is essential is because David consented. He permits, he allows God that position in his life. Hold on to that thought as I remind you to what I said in my first point, how David is so relatable. He's a kindred spirit to where we tend to see things the way he does. If we tend to see life the way David does, as a constant battle, we're just trying to survive, could that not imply that you and I tend to see God the way he does? That the only reason why you or me would say, God, you're so essential to me, is because we, quote, unquote, allow God that position. We allow God to have that position in our lives, that he is only essential because we say so, not because he is so. Take a listen to what it says, starting in verse 10 of our passage. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that it's the Lord that will make you a house. God is saying... You don't make me essential, boy. I make you essential. You don't put me in my place. I put you in your place. God is the most essential person of all, period. Which means all the essential needs that we need as a society, stable government, safe neighborhoods, a booming economy, does not come from the power of man. It comes from the sole power of God. Which means God doesn't need David. He doesn't need you to validate him, to allow him, to permit him, to deputize him, to legitimize him, to position him as the most essential person of all. He is the most essential person of all. This is what God is trying to teach David in this season of peace. This is what God is trying to teach you, Christian, in this season of peace we're in right now. But there's so much more that we need to grasp from what I just said. So let's do that now by going to my final point. The son of David, who is the most essential person, to us. Read again with me our passage starting in verse 12. We read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now here we read God telling David that his desire to build God a temple is not going to be completely frustrated. Why? Because God makes a promise that one of his offspring, a son of David, will fulfill that desire. Yeah, this son of David will make God essential for the people of God, right? Now, if you're familiar with David's story, you may be tempted to think that you know who the answer is, who the son of David is. You think it might be Solomon. Because after all, in 1 Kings chapters 5 through 8, we, record, we see that Solomon actually did build a temple of God for God's people, hence symbolizing his essentialness for all the nation of Israel. But there's a problem of thinking that Solomon is the person that God is specifically thinking of. Because all the reasons to why God rejected David's temple could equally apply to Solomon's temple. Remember what I said the temple symbolized. The temple symbolized man's power, David's power, right? Maybe even Solomon's power to make God essential, to allow God to be essential, to validate God to be essential, to legitimize God to be essential. No man has that power, which means no son of David has that power either, unless there is a son of David who's more than a man. But who could that be? Fast forward a couple thousand years, we land in a place called Galilee, where a young maiden is visited by an angel named Gabriel, where he reveals to her some astounding news. Take a listen, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 31, we read, And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and she'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Doesn't that sound similar to what we just read in verse 13? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It turns out the son of David God is referring to in 2 Samuel 7 is not Solomon. It's Jesus Christ. Yeah. The person who allows God to be the most essential for the people of God is Jesus and Jesus alone. Because it makes sense. Who is Jesus? He is man, but he's also God. He is the eternal son of God. God himself makes himself essential for you, for me. Nobody else but God alone. Here's the question. How did Jesus make himself essential for us? By doing for us what no human being is able to do. Because he's able to meet a need that is far more essential, far greater than our need for food, our need for stable governments, our need for water, our need for safety. He is able to save us from the very thing that homelessness, hunger, and thirst only potentially threatens us with. He saves us from death. Death. How? By coming into the world as a human being, living the perfect moral life, and suffering a sinner's death in place of those who put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. This is what it means. By repenting of your sins and by recognizing Jesus for who he is, always was, and always will be, Jesus is the most essential person ever. That is what the Christmas message is trying to teach us. And there's nothing you or I or David or anyone else that establishes the essentialness of Jesus. Only Christ and Christ alone. This is the message Christmas is trying to tell you. The question is, are you hearing it? Are you listening to it? Are you believing it? Are you believing it? 
You know, this is a crazy time of year right now to where it's very normal and understandable to why we kind of put to the side those who we would deem to be unessential. Hey, we all do it, and sometimes it's necessary. But as your pastor, I'm imploring you now, do not make the mistake of putting Jesus in that same group of non-essential folks. In fact, do the opposite. Recognize him as the most essential person right here now in this season of Advent because Christ is the most essential person ever. He is more essential than any other person that you have in your life or will ever have in your life. And therefore, live that out by remembering him, by relishing him, by obeying him, by worshiping him, by following him every season of your life, not just in this Advent season. This is what God has called us to learn and what he's called us to live out as we go into this season of Advent now. Will you hear it? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, as we think now about what, <clears throat> what you're trying to teach us here about yourself, that Advent simply magnifies and spotlights, we ask for your mercies and for your forgiveness if for whatever reason we have cast you away like the long-lost friend who no longer has any essential value to us. Father, forgive us if we've allowed you to become so familiar that we have taken you for granted and we have prioritized other things as well as other people during this season of Advent. Lord, we pray that especially the person that we would focus on fellowshipping with, of following, of being devoted to, of spending time and making room for Lord, let it always be you and only you. God, we ask that as we go into this chaos known as Christmas, that we would never forget that you are the person that we are to be with at all times. Not just in this season of Advent, but in every seasons of life. The seasons of joy, the seasons of sorrow, the seasons of strength, the seasons of weakness, the seasons of plenty, the seasons of lack. Lord, we pray that you would truly be the most essential person of every season of our lives. Help us to do that now, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.